This podcast is brought to you by Final Stretch Media. They gave me a voice. They turned my ideas into high-quality audio and video content. With their professional team, equipment, and expertise, they record, edit, and provide video and audio. Final Stretch Media has done a fantastic job with everything video and audio related for me. So if you ever find yourself in the need, uh, you can find their information in the show notes. This podcast is also brought to you by Quickly Brain Racers, the first ever live racing competition for the brain. Download their app and play live this weekend on an iOS device against the world. I have raced and it's really, really cool. So definitely check them out. You can find the link to the app in the show notes. Uh, hello, all. I am Dr. Patrick Maloney, and this is the Thinking Critically podcast. I know that you're all used to John hosting these podcasts, and rest, rest assured, he'll be back for the next one. Uh, we're coming to you at a very dire time in America and around the world. On Sunday, we recorded our 10 millionth COVID-19 infection, and uh, we've exceeded 243,000 deaths, uh, which makes up about a fifth of the cases and deaths worldwide. Uh, Sunday was also the fifth day in a row that we recorded in excess of 100,000 confirmed cases, and our seven-day average is now more than 111,000 confirmed cases per day, and we're averaging more than 800 deaths per day throughout the beginning of November. Now, more troubling, perhaps, is the rate at which these case counts are increasing. We had our first million cases in April, the second million following six weeks, six weeks later, the third and fourth weeks after that, and or excuse me, the fourth and fifth million were less than three weeks each. The sixth through eighth million were leveled off at about three weeks apiece. But then the ninth just took just two weeks and um, the 10th took just 10 days. At this pace, we're gonna be seeing more than 200,000 cases per day by Thanksgiving and more than a million new cases every week. So today we are actually gonna go back to the beginning of the pandemic. Our guest, Bettina Schneider, uh, was on the ground in China in January when the pandemic broke out. Uh, Bettina has a master's degree in public health from the New York University School of Public Health. Uh, while at NYU, Bettina collaborated with UNICEF and American University of Beirut to increase measles immunization coverage and cholera prevention efforts in Syrian UN internally displaced person camps. Uh, she also collaborated with NYU Shanghai researching the effects of climate change on communicable respiratory illness. Uh, she has held positions with the Minnesota Department of Health and the New York City Department of Health. And uh, she is currently a Global Epidemiology Fellow with the Public Health Institute and CDC, working with CDC South Africa. So welcome, Bettina. It's uh, great to have you here. Hi, Dr. Maloney. It's great to be here. So Bettina is actually TikTok famous now. She recorded a video about her initial when she knew that COVID was actually going to be a big deal in around the world. And it's since gone viral. It has over a million views, uh, 264,000 likes, uh, and over 4,300 shares. I mean, just absolutely incredible. So I actually wanted to go ahead and I wanted to play this video for you. Those on the podcast will be able to listen and those on YouTube should be able to see. Everyone could go around the room and tell me about the time that you realized coronavirus was very serious. Oh shit, I have been waiting for this one. So I am a infectious disease epidemiologist by trade and I just happened to be in China all of January. Um, what was I doing there? I was studying the effect of climate change on respiratory borne illness. I got there the 4th, I left on one of the last planes out the 24th, but the moment I knew it was really serious, 
uh, probably between the 6th to the 8th of January, where I had multiple emails alerting me of the threat from the State Department, the Embassy, uh, CDC, and my place of work. And when I had gotten back to the States to my place of work, the New York City Department of Health, I was working on critical threat priority pathogens. And after a debrief, I cried hysterically for two Two full hours. Sorry, messed up my words. Two full hours. Um, I called my mom, I called my friends, and they didn't want to hear it. They were like, it's going to be fine. And I'm like, it's not fine. Nothing's fine. Um, so now I'm a global health epidemiology fellow for the CDC. So yeah, there, there's the TikTok. I tried to put as much as I could in there as quickly as I could, but here we are. <laughs> yeah, I think it was incredibly effective. And I think that people have responded really, really favorably to it. Um, I actually haven't had any negative comments on that TikTok. That's I, I incredible. I don't know how it happened, so. <laughs> I don't know how we go through anything without any negative comments nowadays. It seems like everything is so polarized and there's, I don't know, it's like everybody views each other as the enemy and, you know, scientists in particular, we're not the enemy. We're just trying to get out the message. We're trying to, you know, help you. But so, so there's a lot in the video that, that I want to talk about. The first of which is when you were in China, what was it like on the ground? Like what was the mood in, in, in China? I mean, it, at, the, at the start of this pandemic. Well, it, it's kind of interesting because I got there the 4th of January. Um, and at the beginning of the month, I didn't really perceive the public as being either aware or if they were aware, concerned. Um, like many countries in Asia, courtesy masks have like commonly worn for a number of years. Mm -hmm. um, and that's for many, that's for many different reasons. Um, mainly a behavioral response to SARS-CoV-1 and the H1N1 outbreaks, but then also just kind of an everyday pr like protection against high particulate matter in the air there. Um, so kind of going into my second week, the, the middle of January there, I did kind of see a noticeable change in public attitudes. Um, I don't speak Chinese and most people do not speak English. Um, so that's definitely a barrier there. But my conversations with English speaking Chinese residents came across as kind of being apprehensive and not necessarily wanting to discuss this as a topic um, in fear of me not wanting to have a certain perspective of China. Um, many people are, are super proud of their country and to foreigners, this isn't something that's necessarily they want to highlight. Um, but by the end of the month, I, I left on January 24th, and by the end, when I was leaving, I remember being in the Shanghai International Airport and feeling this heightened sense of panic. Um, people were obviously anxious. People were just wanted to be out of that space and be out of the country, um, and nearly everyone on my, my flight home was wearing a mask. Well, that's good that, you know, they were at least more willing after, you know, that initial sort of disbelief, which, which I think is like entirely understandable, right? I mean, nobody, nobody really believes that it's going to be a big deal or nobody believes that's going to affect, it's going to affect them until they're being directly like confronted with it. But, but what area of China were you in relative to Wuhan? Because it's, it's a big country. So. Um, so I primarily spent a few weeks in Shanghai, but I would take weekend trips out to the Yellow Mountains, which is about two hours away from Wuhan and near the Hubei province. And then I'd gone up to Beijing. So um, going into my last four or five days there, there was court cases being actually reported all around the country in Shanghai, in Beijing, um, not just in Hubei province itself where Wuhan is. Yeah. So, so it's just... It's just so interesting that, so one, 
that there are so many similarities between American and Chinese sort of perspectives, like how they want to be to be publicly perceived. So they they don't want to give the impression that you know this is this is going to be a big deal. I feel like, do you feel like it's it's more of denial in the United States, or do you feel like it's like that same sense of like patriotism, I guess, for not wanting to cast your cast your country in a poorer light? I think it's kind of paradoxical because both countries have a, like a pretty high sense of nationalism. Mm -hmm. But how both countries view health um, is very different. So in the United States, we're very notoriously individualistic, whereas in many other countries, and China especially, it's a, it's a collective. Um, so from the get-go, like when things started to be a little bit more turbulent there, I was noticing it being a collective fight against this, not necessarily an individual fight. And do you think that that's really like molded a lot of the responses of, six, of countries who have successfully combated the, the pandemic? I mean, the majority of which are, are in Southeast Asia. I mean, we talk, about, we talk about China, we talk about South Korea, we talk about Fiji, New Zealand, Australia. And so do you, do you feel that, that that sense of collectivism is, is definitely, it impacts the, the pandemic response? definitely aided the, like, the public's response and their behavioral attitudes to doing what they can for people outside their loved ones and their, their friends. So. Then, so when, all right, so when you got home, then, you, first of all, what was the evacuation process like? Like, how did, who told you, like, oh, you've got to get on, you've got to get on a plane, you've got to get out of here. I mean, at that point, you had to have been pretty, pretty scared. Like, I, I imagine so, that there was a lot of fear, yeah, a lot I of anxiety. Really, I was really lucky because the 24th was my originally planned date to go home. Oh, so you didn't um, even have to make any no, changes I, in your I, travel. Uh, unfortunately, though, I was with colleagues who decided to go. <laughs> One of my colleagues was a fourth-year medical student at NYU at the time, and after getting done studying what we were studying there, he's like, I'm gonna go visit my family in Wuhan for the first time in a decade. No. It had been planned before he even got to China. So as the month was rolling out, we were kind of begging him not to go. And he's like, if I don't see my grandmother, this might not be the, this might be the last time I do. Um, yeah. So he made the decision to go to Wuhan and he was quite literally on the last plane out of Wuhan, the, the 25th, I believe. Oh, wow. Cause I was gonna ask if he, Very if he actually- <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because they went into full lockdown, full quarantine for the entire province. So that's, I mean, I mean, kind of lucky that he was that he was able to to get out. Is his grandmother okay though? I I think she's good, but oh, okay. So that that's great. From, from getting back, he was like pretty shaken up, um, especially because he quarantined right away when getting back. Even though that wasn't the public norm, if you've been no. in China, that wasn't messaging to to quarantine. Um, but yeah. Yeah. So. Okay. It was a very different, um, very different because he was quite literally on the last plane out. But for my flight, even though it was planned, um, our, we, la we landed in the S Seattle Tacoma airport here in the United States three days after the first case had been identified here in the States and they had flown through Seattle. So um, <laughs> like at, it, it was it was kind of nuts. 
Um, because as we were going through customs, I remember the questions that officers were asking and they were kind of vague and they're not going to be par particularly good at parsing out whether or not someone was at risk of being sick or carrying the disease. Um, and CDC was just setting up shop and people were like hastily bringing in boxes and equipment. And then once we got outside of security, um, there's a few local news outlets that were live reporting in the airport itself. So it was like, wow, we just got out of China and what's <laughs> yeah. going on. So it's just so crazy, like hearing about the process that you've experienced, because I remember, so I, when I was getting my master's in public health was when we had the massive outbreak of Ebola in West Africa. So that was like sort of the, the first like public health crisis that, that I was, you know, involved in, aware of, and um, hearing the differences between, between the travel, the, the travel restrictions with Ebola and then with coronavirus are just crazy different. Like everybody who was coming out of West Africa, mandatory quarantines for 30 days. They quarantined within their houses. They were watched, they were monitored. Like they, like they, there was just like that, that care, like uh, ability that, that they had, they like the ability to receive care and um, like, in in airports and everything like that, everybody was very like well versed, literate on what they should do. And this happened like very early on in terms of travel restrictions coming into play. But then you have the COVID response that, I mean, people don't know what to ask. There's no mandatory quarantines. Like I and you were just coming off a plane directly from directly from China and. And at the twenty, at the time of the twenty fourth, the U.S. has you know three weeks or so, three and a half weeks to you know get some preparations into place. It seems, I don't well, know, it seems crazy. And, and even then, I, I remember being on this plane and like hearing people hacking up along with a pretty severe oh. upper respiratory inf infection, and I'm like, do not let paranoia set in your brain. Don't let it, don't let it set in. Um, but even then, it was just like this is going to this is going to be pretty quick. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I, I had gotten back to work on the 25th. So the day after I got home, I went back to work um, and I had debrief. And it's at that point in time, 20,000 people a day were coming into the United States from, from airports in China. Um, wow. And that, that quickly changed. But at that point in time, as later on, ironically, a lot of the infections here in New York are coming from Europe, whereas the West Coast mm -hmm. is primarily China. Um, so. That's a that's a like big critique initially of the of the initial response is that yes we quarantined tra or we restrict restricted travel from China but the European imported cases are responsible for the massive outbreak in New York which we which we still don't fully understand or know the scope of um, because it, Interesting, interestingly enough. Um, there was a preprint in Nature last week that estimate by the end of May there was 1.7 million cases in, in New York City alone. Yeah. By the end of May. The figures are absolutely astounding. Um, I actually wrote an article for Intelligence Speculation about this. At like the end of March, I think it was, there were 23 confirmed cases in New York, Chicago, San Francisco, and... Um, I don't want to misrepresent the numbers, but I think that I'm just going to look it up real quick. I don't want to, I don't want to misre misrepresent uh, what I'm saying here, but uh, yeah, uh, basically, yeah, let me, 
I, I had also recently seen a piece of literature estimating that nearly 80% of the infections in this country too by that same week, the end of March, had gone undiagnosed. Um, and, and while that's reflective of the, the testing failures um, in this country, especially early on, it's also kind of indicative of a much larger problem in our response too. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I can't. Did you find the magic I, numbers somewhere? I, no, and it's incredibly frustrating. <laughs> oh, here, here we go, here we go, this is the right one. Um, Okay, yes, I got it, <laughs> finally. And it's gonna be worth it, I promise. Uh, so research from Northeastern University suggested that by March 1st, so March 1st, not, Mar not the end of March, there were already 28,000 infections circulating in Boston, Seattle, Chicago, San Francisco, and New York. But on March 1st, there were only 23 confirmed cases in, in those areas. Yeah, it's reflective of the fact that we could not test test at, at, at large scale. And I also that March 1st, March 2nd area, I think we had only conducted only 472 tests via CDC and regional labs in this country. And those are, of course, suspected cases. But of those 472, if it's coming down to 23, like... Yeah, it's... So the United States response... We, that's with all so of the with, with all of the testing issues, I, I mean, that same week, so, that same week in March, South Korea had already completed a hundred thousand tests, and we had less than five hundred. So why why did we insist on making and using our own tests when? There were tests that were developed in South Korea and China, the WHO. Yes. Um, so the, the sequence had gone live internationally, I think January 11th. So health communities around the world were making their tests as is. And I, I think it took about nine days for the CDC to make their tests by January 20th. And those tests in particular were just meant to be surveillance tests. So these mm -hmm. kits were sent to health departments and local departments across the country. And each one of these kits could test up to 800 people. So in all, it could, it could have tested thousands of people. Um, and unfortunately, there's three parts of this test. Two out of the three are functional. And the third one, which is an the third assay, was not functional. And for quite a while, people didn't know whether or not it was a contamination issue or whether or not it was a developmental development issue, um, but it, it was known from the beginning, hey, we don't need this third assay because these two assays will test for this particular coronavirus. That third assay will just test for any coronavirus. We don't need it. Um, and it would have just taken an overnight PUA from our federal administration to say, hey, run the tests anyway. Just use the tests. And that was the order that was eventually given out a month and a half later. Um, so something that took a month and a half really only needed an overnight pressure. So, yeah, it's just the, so in my view, and I mean, obviously correct me if I'm wrong. So in my view, I feel like when we entered into lockdown, that would have given us enough time to one, develop a test, get testing capacity up to speed so we don't have to test all of our tests at CDC. We can test them at like local and state health uh, labs. And uh, then also establish, you know, contact tracing. Um, so I, I, I feel like- I'm a little bit of a different view here. I think by lockdown, we'd already 
missed our crucial window of time. Because mm-hmm. we lost the ability to not only identify cases, but isolate cases from the get-go. Um, if those surveillance tests had worked and had done what their, like, their original purpose was to be, we wouldn't even be talking about this right now. This would be a totally different conversation. See, I don't, I don't know that, that, I, that I 100% agree with that. And, uh, and here's why. I think that, one, the virus is incredibly explosive. I mean, we're talking about reproductive number estimates, like in like the, you know, estimating, you know, two and a half cases. So reproductive number for those of you guys who aren't epidemiologists are the number of secondary infections you can expect to uh, give rise to if, if you're a primary case. So if I'm infected, I'm going to infect on average two and a half other people. So it, the virus is just particularly explosive. So I don't feel like, I mean, maybe we could have initially contained it, but I think that it's, it's sort of bore out even across countries that have been, you know, incredibly successful, um, that there was always going to be like that, that initial, that initial spike. Like, I think very quickly it becomes, you know, not trying to eradicate the disease, but sort of manage it and quote unquote, like flatten the, flatten the curve. So keep case counts down. So we're actually able to prevent our hospital system from becoming overwhelmed. But, but my whole point was about the, about when we got out of lockdown. So yes, I would agree that lockdown was too late. Absolutely. I don't know that it would have stopped, that we could have eradicated the disease if we could have, you know, eliminated it right then and there. I don't think necessarily eradication, but like, think about this in terms of a snowball. Do you want to start with a smaller snowball or do you want to start with a larger snowball? A smaller snowball. I mean, obviously, 100%. And, and for a month and a half, walking into work every day, I was working in the bureau that was the first line of response for America's largest city. Every single day, the attitudes walking into that office were, can we test? And it's an empty answer, knowing that we can't even mitigate from day one, and then on top of that, <laughs> on top of that, saying that we can't e- we can't even test. Yeah, and testing and surveillance has got to, is the number one thing that we need to control this pandemic. That we needed to control it back then, and that we need to control it going forward. And what, but what I was saying about the lockdowns was, if you're going to have a lockdown you can only lift that lockdown restriction. You can only buy yourself enough time to get to a point where you can be offering a test to every single person that needs it and that you have the capacity to trace all of the contacts of each individual person who tests positive. And when we opened up, we didn't have either of those things in place. And uh, that to me Um, seems... And unfortunately, a lot of those things were actually, there was plans in place for those things, especially here in New York City, but steps for those things, one through 10, got kicked out from underneath right away once testing couldn't go through. And so the moment testing went through, it basically kicked the foundation for a lot of these emergency response plans from underneath many different health departments across this country. So do you think that that's a reflection of America at large being unwilling to participate in the lockdown? Or do you think that there, do you think it's a failure of leadership from the top down? Because there's, there's no doubt that, that the, the, the Trump administration, their view was always, it's gonna be a state by state policy. We're gonna like put guidelines out, but each state is going to respond to it differently. So each of our 50 states had 50 different responses, had 50 different plans. So, 
So is it the Having leadership a, or is yeah, it the Americans' unwillingness to, to participate in a lockdown? I think it's, a, it's both, right? You can't just put it down to somebody that doesn't want to purposely inform the, pe the people, but at the same time, the people don't necessarily want behavioral change. So mm. um, it's, it's definitely both. Um, and, and with a country that's so connected like ours, um, so many different hubs, so many different cities that people are frequently living by coastal or going in between for work, whatnot, um, having 50 different responses isn't the answer. Um, and not having that universal response from the top down really, really undercut our response as a whole. Yeah, yeah, I 100% I agree. It's just, if you don't have a, and I feel like this has just been on display too with schools reopening is like the thing that like comes to mind is that each district within each state had like a different response and different guidelines going forward. Like there was no, no CDC response or no, um, no government response that allowed like CDC to put out guidelines or recommendations or anything along those lines. And then it was like the evidence that showed that children can in fact get COVID and can in fact transmit it. It's just like that evidence was just sort of like ignored yeah, actually, for, for the, the large part. Syndromes that can specifically develop in children too is quite horrendous. So the idea that it's affecting just the elderly was <laughs> from the get-go. Oh, it's just gonna at attack the old. It's just gonna attack the frail. No, no, it's attacking everyone. Yeah, and we don't know I mean, we do know some of the some of the effects that COVID can have on young folks and even even you know adolescents, adults, and, and older folks as well. We we know that there can be some long term effects already, but there's still so much that we don't know uh, going forward. How this is going to affect the immune system? What sort of conditions can result later on in life? Yeah, the the jury's still out on what life is going to be like for the recovered and what long hauler symptoms that are going to be present for someone's life maybe yeah. because post-viral symptoms can be particularly nasty whether it's chronic fatigue syndrome or myelangic encephalomyelitis these things can take years if not decades to go away um, and on top of it viruses are particularly nasty they can change the pathophysiology of how our bodies function right so they have the ability to turn on genes that were predispositioned for such as diabetes which is something i think is particularly ironic about this virus right because this virus loves to th thrive in high blood sugar so not only is it predominantly affecting people with diabetes it's going to be quite possibly giving people diabetes yeah. I don't know. That's, it's, it's so, it's, it's scary, genuinely scary thinking about this going forward because in the United States, we have had 10 million confirmed cases. That's, that's a drastic underestimation by, you know, a long shot. And if we look at the mortality data and look at what excess curves we have of prior years, it's, it's still not looking, looking reflective of what we think it is so far. Yeah, absolutely. So the, so I know you were only in China in January, but knowing the response by the United States and by China, are, is it just drastically different? Like the, fun, the, the approach is just like fundamentally, fundamentally different. Well, I, is it a leadership thing? Is it that because the people are different, have this sort of collective idea of society or? 
also China valued science. I mean, since the 50s and 60s, it's become a superpower because of science. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they're not willing to not listen to scientists soon, but right away in the beginning, the WHO was only alerted by the Chinese CDC through a very roundabout way. When Dr. Li Wenliang, I don't mean to mispronounce his name by any means, but when Dr. Li alerted online chat groups of clusters of pneumonia of an unknown etiology in Wuhan, this got attention in a roundabout way back to the CDC officials in China, because a lot of that information was being blocked by Wuhan, like police. Early reports of this to their CDC was not getting through. It had to go through chat groups on WeChat and then a local newspaper to report it to the CDC there. So that's that's actually interesting that you bring that up because that's something I did want to talk about was sort of the sort of the restriction of information coming out of of China. So and that that I almost feel like is sort of like a parallel between the American and the and the Chinese response was the sort of sort of minimization of at least externally in China, the minimization of what, what, is, what is happening. Well, and I think to some extent, a lot of the people there don't necessarily question the government. I, I hate mm. to use this as an example, but it was a very stark point in my trip there where a friend, I had met up with a friend in Beijing and she was so excited to show me some local customs. And she's like, we're waking up at 4 a.m. to go to a flag rising. Everybody goes, it's broadcasted every single morning, about 15 to 20,000 people go every single morning. I was like, all right, sure, let's go. If this is what the people do, let's do it. Um, And as the sun was coming up above the flag, I was looking around and this, this crowd, this crowd of thousands. And I look at her, I'm like, are we standing in Tiananmen Square? She's like, yeah, how'd you know? I was like, and she had no clue, none, absolutely none about the history of Tiananmen Square. Because really? She turned it. See, that's... And it took me a few days to try to figure out how to tell her. I, I can imagine that being in like a country that has like that type of authoritarian regime where information is really restricted is, has got to be a surreal experience uh, for, for you. Well, I think in general, the people there have trust in their government to be competent in a response. Whereas from the get-go here, it's very evident that things were not competent. So even if you don't. I, yeah, I, but I, I would say probably. For, well, I, I guess after we learned yeah. that 3 million people do not view that as the case. I, yeah, I, I was going to say, like, we up upper 60 millions of people, you know, still, still voted for, you know, Donald Trump in the, in the election. And I mean, I don't know if that's because, you know, people generally identify as Republicans or voting Republican, if they are, you know, voting on other issues like the economy. But personally, I don't see how any issue could loom larger in the American psyche right now than COVID-19. But maybe that's just because I'm a scientist and, you know, a little out of tune with, uh, with the general public, but. Yeah. I, I, that's, this is something I have to constantly remind myself and on TikTok too, as I'm trying to get information to groups of people that are not in this field. I'm like, how can I make this digestible? Because I've been living in a silo of public health, only public health for about 11 months now. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I definitely have to remind myself 
of that as well, which actually, you know, reminds me. Um, so back when you came back from China and you first started talking and you, in your video, you said you talked to your parents and they did not want to hear what you had to say. What was that like interacting with, with people who you know and who you love and who you respect, but having them not wanting to hear what you've had to say about the, the pandemic and about so the effects that it's going to have? For, for a, a little bit of context here, I was working on critical threat priority pathogens, such as CORUS and CRE at the New York City Department of Health. Um, I was primarily working on surveillance of emerging CRE, which for all intended consequences was basically trying to get 35 labs and 50 hospitals to properly not only report this emerging disease, but also like treat it. <laughs> um, because these people hadn't seen this before. And this CRE has an upwards mortality rate of 60% once it's bloodborne. And so what is CRE for, for the, for the layman? So CRE is an acronym for Carbapenem Resistant Anteriobacteriaceae. It is a group of antimicrobial um, resistant bugs that is resistant to the highest class of antibiotics, Carbapenems, which is commonly used as a last line of resort. So they're I, super bugs. Yes, they're super, and these are the scary, scary ones. They're the nightmare ones. Um, and while I was working on these, and I, for a long time, months prior, I've been thinking, wow, if there's ever an emerging bug that comes through, places will not know, labs will not know how to test for it, even by clinical lab sanitary institute standards, they will not know how to start doing this uniformly on a front. Um, but after my first debrief, the day I got back to work, I went home early. I, I cried hysterically for two hours. I tried to figure out how I was going to talk to my mom about how serious this was going to be because part of that debrief included estimates of a million cases by next month. And it's, we can't even mitigate. And it's very similar language that was told me to, to me that day that if people who are wondering, look up the Red Dawn emails. These, this is a group of emails by public health officials that were kind of in states all over the place talking to each other initially about this. But a lot of that language I got back, I heard when I got back to the states. So we can't even mitigate and it's gonna be a million cases by next month. So as I called my parents, um, I, I think my mom was just trying to console me because I was, I was still crying hysterically. I was like, I felt like chicken little, the sky is falling. Like this is going to be bad. And in front of me, I saw this unraveling into a mess. I, I, I didn't know how big the mess would get, but I just knew in my gut it was going to be horrific. And my mom's just like, oh, it's going to be fine. It's, it's going to be fine. <laughs> Calm down. Um, and I, I called my friends and I was just like, hey, we really need to start preparing here. I don't know what steps we need to be taking here necessarily, but we really need to start preparing. Um, and I think yeah. <laughs> being chicken little and giving them this information, um, it's, it's a lot to take in. Even though they, a lot of my friends are in public health, for, for the non-epidemiology folks and the non-infectious disease folks, it was still a lot to take in for them. Yeah. I, I mean, I had the I same. I think people trusted our systems to work. And I think at the end of the day, even if you are on the political spectrum of being liberal, you trusted our federal administration to at least protect the people. I think it was unimaginable for a lot of folks in this country to think our government wouldn't protect us from one of the most, one of the largest national security threats in the past millennia. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I had the, 
I had, this, I had the literal same experience. It's just like I was, I was, I had the chicken lido syndrome going for me, for me as well. And uh, yeah, it was, and nobody wanted to hear it with the exception of, of a few like close family members who knew that I don't overreact very easily. And I had told them previously, like in January, I was like, there's nothing that you can be doing now. There's no information that, you know, we have like, so far as we know, it hasn't reached the United States yet, you know, and then, in, you know, come in March, come late February, early March, I was, I was very much on the, we need to, we need to take steps. We need to prepare individually. I, it, it for about a month and a half there, every single day, I woke up too anxious to want to go to work. I did not want to know what I was going to find out at work. Um, I, because everybody was walking around and acting like life was normal. And it was very, it was very opposite to that. Yeah. Not normal things. Yeah. So in, in New York, you were there during the, the worst part of the pandemic in New York. What was, what was that like? So when did, when did the public in New York go from business as usual to we're locked down? Everybody is, everybody is, you know, uh, very, uh, in, in their apartments and their houses and everything like that. I, I would say the big turn was the beginning of March where the, uh, I, ERs and ICUs across the city were at max capacity. People were freaking out. Videos were getting out. If you knew a healthcare provider, then you were starting to be a little freaked out. Um, I, I think by the third week of March here, I, I went on lockdown personally March 17th. And that was only because I worked at the New York City Department of Health. Other places had gone into lockdown maybe the previous week, March 10th to the 12th. Um, but I, I remember being at work and seeing the, the last of the folks there just walking around the office like things are, hey, this is really messed up, but we're still here. Um, and, and we shouldn't have been because people on my floor died. It, it's very, it's very interesting. <laughs> Looking back, it's just like we were a first line defense for the city and going into work not knowing that we were still infecting each other but it's one one thing that i i do have a critique of as a last ditch effort to try to get the staff and the capacity at the new york city department of health there was an open call for city researchers and epidemiology positions where 300 people interviewed in one day and 300 people were interviewing for these positions in the same room Oh, uh, and gosh. it was March 15th. <laughs> wow. See, you know, it, that's, that's so crazy. Because I'm thinking to myself, I actually flew out for an interview, a job interview before PHICBC, and it was in Atlanta, you know, home of the CDC and everything like that. And it was March 8th, and there were still no restrictions. Like, at, like the whole plane was full. I, I, I took public transportation to the interview. Like, it's like, like, even like me, like I put, took public transportation. It's like, so that's even like me underselling, like how, how bad things, things were actually, were actually going to get, but. Well, infinite, infamously, the, the New York public transportation here has had a drastic turn where it's been 5 million riders a day to 500,000 riders a day. And I would say over the month of March, there was this trickling in of some people wearing 
absolutely insane mass. I, I saw a few people with N99s and N100s. And I'm like, how did you even get that? How did you even get that? Yeah. I, have, I have an N99 myself. And I was just like, how did you get this? So there's, there's a few people like that. But I would say maybe 75% of the people on the trains, even through March, were just like, I'm just packing in here. Um, but then it quickly became a ghost town, right? And these yep. pictures were like a warning signal to the rest of the nation that this was coming. Um, I, I remember going to my grocery store and it, thousands of people were in panic. I had gone over to the meat aisle and there was no meat. I called my parents, hey, so there's no meat at the grocery store. And they FedEx me meat on dry ice from the Midwest. Did they really? Yes. Wow. I couldn't find That's toilet paper, but I found my, my only, the only thing that was stocked in my neighborhood is the bodegas. So I was like, all right, the bodegas have me covered at the end of the day, even if the grocery stores don't. Yeah. I was in, uh, I was in New Orleans, which was one of the initial hotspots. Um, I, I was finishing up school out there. Um, and I had like a similar, like very similar, like, and it's just so vivid in my mind. It was like, I had to go downtown for, for work and, usually like because I work I work like a little off the French Quarter so I, I sort of had to go like through like the main downtown area and um it was just empty it was just like absolute ghost town and uh it New Orleans is never empty there is always something going on there is always you know people are always it's you're partying sun, sundown to your sun up to sundown there and uh there was nobody and uh yeah, I also could not get toilet paper or paper towels or hand sanitizer or even hand soap. Like everything was was sold out. I was I did get meat though. There we didn't we were not out of meat, but uh, it's just I don't know. It was it was truly a uh, alarming uh, experience. But yes, I did have the same experience with the bodegas and like smaller shops. They definitely had you know more things more things in stock. But you know th this just put a memory into my mind, but when I got back to China and after that first debrief and I was in chicken little mode of being like, hey people, you need to be more cautious. You need to, if you're sick, just stay home. I remember telling my doorman and I live in a building of 800 apartment units, 1500 residents approximately at the time. And I remember telling my doorman like, hey, can we put up a sign for, um, for mass? And the, lar the large demographic of my building are, is Chinese exchange students. Um, so while a lot of them already do this, a lot of some people didn't. So um, I was like, hey, can we put up some, some stuff about masks? And if you are feeling sick, like this is the hotlines to call because I've worked at the city at that point in time. Mm -hmm. uh, and they went to get approval from the manager, approval from the apartment complex um, company. And they were like, no, this doesn't look good. We can't do it. I think back to like the end of January and February, all of this, and you know, to this day, my dorm and I are like, yeah, we think about that. We should have done that. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Absolutely. That. So you were, you were on, so you were, you were pushing masks from the, from the very beginning then. Yeah. So, so you, you were telling people I, to. It, I, I've always kind of been in the boat that this thing isn't going to protect you from anything, but you might have the chance of protecting others because I had seen some, some really interesting re research that was put out by the CDC in 2019, even before any of this had come out, that um, surgical masks, within 15 minutes of wearing them, they become so moist that it actually attracts pathogens inwards. Um, not great. That's not the message we want to be getting out to people. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but the idea that it stops pathog pathogens from getting out is nearly everything. Mm -hmm. so.
Absolutely. And that's, that's just such important messaging is that when you wear the mask, like, and, and I, I've like hit this on Twitter and in my article and everything, I was like, everybody views like heroes and societies as like vigilante billionaires or Kryptonians flying around with capes and whatnot. But I was like, you have the chance, like the literal chance to save lives you, of your neighbors, of your family, of your friends. And all you have to do is wear a mask. I was like, be a hero, wear a mask. That's all you have to do. But people are just, are so resistant to the, to the idea of it. And I actually had a conversation with somebody who uh, is, a, is a diehard Trump supporter, very, you know, leaning conservative and everything like that. And they, we brought up the, the topic of masks. And I said, you know, we really need to have a, a, a national mask mandate. That's, that's just something that we need to, to implement. And they said, well, you can't, you can't have a national mask mandate because it's unconstitutional and it will be impossible to enforce. And I just said, you know, imagine if we had a president or leadership in charge who instead of denying science came out and said what I just said, you can save lives, your fellow Americans, you can save their lives by simply wearing a mask. So just imagine if that messaging were different. And then I was like, do you think that we need to enforce a mask mandate at that point or would everybody just be wearing masks? Well, I, I, I think it's, it's tricky because well, okay. About a month ago, Cornell University released a piece of literature saying that the President of the United States was the largest cause of misinformation in this country. I'm not sure. It was like 38% or something like that too, right? It was just like an astounding number. It, it, we're, yes. And I, I think there's a certain demographic of people who, if not all Trump supporters at this point, will be apprehensive to ever wear a mask. Because they've just been so, at this point, it's been in their mind so, so it's been it, rendered. It, it's become a, a politicized issue. Rather exactly. Than it's, than it's a political statement and not something for your health. So do you think that that elect, so do you think that the Biden administration, if they come out with that strong messaging, do you think it's going to reach those people? Do you think that, I mean, that, that I think there's any, any chance? The way a mask mandate would be universally working is if there is fines if you're not wearing a mask, a $50 fine if you've seen not wearing one. I mean, you get a fine for not wearing a seatbelt. These are measures of public safety. But do you think that, so let's say that we do put fines into place and um, I, other countries I, have, I've been seeing them do it. Italy, same. Yeah, 100%. Like, there's, there's precedent for it abroad. But, but my question is, if we put these fines into place, do you think that that just galvanizes those people who already aren't, aren't willing to wear a mask? Like, do you think that that makes it more of a political statement, more of the mentality that... System, a finger to the system, for sure. It, 100%. And it's like, well, it's just a $50 fine. I'll happily pay that if I can film this encounter and say, the police are taking away my rights, like this, that, and the other thing. Um, I, so do, do they just, do they just, you know, pay the fine or, you know, just use it to, to make a statement at that point? 
I don't know. I, I think we're talking about lack of reasoning here. So um, it's going to take decades to get out of a mindset that this is something that is personally attacking you mm -hmm. or your own liberties rather than taking the approach to protect others yeah. uh, at, or just care about the public or care about our most marginalized or care about our most vulnerable in society. Um, yeah. so, I, I don't personally know how it's going to go. <laughs> We're so not I talking can, about reason here. <laughs> yes, but so I, I painted a, a pretty grim picture of where we are right now when, when I introduced you uh, and inter you did the introduction of the podcast. With, like I said, we've hit 10 million infections. We've got 240,000 plus deaths. Now, actually, the numbers just came in, and this is the sixth day in a row when we've had more than 100,000 confirmed cases. And like I said before, we're on pace to hit 200,000 cases a day by Thanksgiving, more than a million every week. Do you think that with a change in leadership, with a new administration, do you think that there's any possibility that we can turn this around? How do you, and if so, what, what do we have to do? In the, in the long term, definitely, but I, I'm, I'm kind of more of a, a doomsday winter person here. We are going into such a dark winter. And mm -hmm. going back to that snowball analogy of what is the number we're starting this winter with? It's not great, right? 200,000 by next month are the projections. Um, so we might be too late for this winter, but it doesn't mean we're not too late for next winter. Um, and having some top-down guidance that is on the ball with this, actually caring about protecting the people and not wanting to run away or hide numbers or like sidestep the issue when things are going to get this rough this winter, I think it's going to be absolutely crucial. Sorry, because Charlie's interrupting us, but uh, yeah, I... I think we, we, we both know it's not going to be pretty this winter and it's going to be really hard but yeah, having an, an administration that wants to actively be doing something when it's that hard, I think is going to be a game changer. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. But there are 72 days, I think, and counting until and that weeks. new, yeah, it, <laughs> until that new administration, until until there's that change in power. So what what can we do? What can the people do? What can public health officials do in the interim? Or no, better yet, take the public health officials out of it because we got to get out of our own silos. What can the people do? Because we can't, we can't count on there to be top-down leadership. We can't count on any sort of national response. What can we do as the people? I think keeping this as a conversational piece is so important. And, and when it comes down to these essentially three things, wear a mask, social distance, and monitor your own health. And that third one is so, so important because we want people to err on the side of caution. If you're having symptoms, don't write it off as the flu. If you're having symptoms, don't write it off as a sinus infection. Get tested, heck, get tested every couple of weeks err on the side of caution and monitor your own health. Because at the end of the day, I, I think some, some of the most recent research coming out of the Hong Kong Institute of Health is that four out of five infections are asymptomatic. So monitor your own health, but also, you know, it comes down to those first two pieces too. So keeping these, this messaging 
very simple, mass distance and monitor your health. Um, yeah. Even with your friends, with your family. And I, I think, I hate to say it, we're going back into our silos here, but being in public health, we're very concerned about the holidays coming up, right? Because mm -hmm. people are traveling around this country to go visit their family, probably for the first time in 10, 11 months now. Um, it, and I think some people are gonna have to make some really hard choices at the end of the day to maybe with going, seeing their family members that are more vulnerable, that are more mar are in a marginalized group being predominantly affected, um, and having to make those hard decisions out of love this holiday yeah. Absolutely. I agree unequivocally. But I, I think that it's going to be difficult for a lot of people during these holidays. And there is a large amount of evidence that has just been coming out recently that, are, that is showing that those small groups, those family interactions are really part of the, part of the problem in terms of driving the, uh, the pandemic. So we know that those issues are there, but I just don't know that, I just know even like anecdotally from my own family, I feel like we have a lot of fatigue. There's a lot of disease fatigue, like information overload. So it's just like, people just want to be done with this, but it's hard convincing people we're, who we're, are mentally checked out. Entering a new way of living for quite a while. Um, we're going to be battling with this for years and how we try to battle it this winter is going to be pretty indicative of how the next few years are going to go, especially with vaccine research coming out, which is great. As of today, I think the 90% with, with Pfizer, which is great, but that has its caveats, right? A hundred percent. And that is still out on immunity. Um, so. And that's actually what we I wanted to take our wins where we can. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. We will. And that I actually wanted to, to talk about that because that's sort of like breaking news as of today. And, um, and just saying that vaccines are not going to be a magic bullet to, to stop this, this virus. Like there is still, we can't just ignore those basic things that we're talking about. Social distancing, wearing a mask, monitoring your health. Those three things are, are so crucially important. And there are so many caveats, like you said, that do come with this vaccine. One, we, there's very limited follow-up period. So we don't know the long-term efficacy and what's going to ultimately turn into effectiveness of, of this vaccine. Um, there's logistical issues. We're going to have to have two doses, and then they're talking about maybe a yearly booster after that. And then there's nearly oh. all vaccines in stage three, stage three are a two part series. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then there's the cold chain issue where this vaccine has to be frozen. If it defrosts even for a minute or two, it's going to reduce that efficacy. And um, then there's the production issue. I mean, even if, even if this gets licensed early next year, it's still going to be many months before it's available for everyday members of the public. It's gonna, we're gonna first target first responders in high risk groups. And then once that's done, it'll be available for the public, but there's gonna have to be some sort of measured yeah. distribution. And I then that's- you, yeah. Sorry to interrupt. But no, please go on. I'd be kind of jealous because we're gonna be seeing parts of the world have their vaccine way before we do. Europe is likely with the Oxford vaccine likely to have their vaccine rollout early of 2021. And it's, it's probably gonna be summer here, if not fall. Um, 
And even then, as you said, we're gonna have who gets this vaccine first in this country. Um, and that's a conversational piece at, at, at itself, right? Because we want to protect the most vulnerable and the most marginalized at risk of getting this disease. But those groups often have their own right to be apprehensive of medicine historically, right? Absolutely. And they are traditionally some of the groups that are the most hesitant to receive vaccines. Um, I know that in my research, in I, I did a lot of research on influenza vaccination and a lot of those marginalized communities have this opinion that either that the vaccine is going to give them the disease or there's this feeling that they're being experimented on. And if you have marginalized communities being the first people who get the vaccine, I can imagine that that, that just sort of reinforces that, that narrative. I think we're probably going to end up seeing some of the things that we were seeing early on in this year too with conspiracy theories. Um, while our Absolutely. own State Department confirmed that Russia was, the, the, the country of Russia was responsible for starting many of these conspiracy theories and putting them out on the two outline, uh, on, online um, applications all across the United States, whether it's not starting the 5G conspiracy and putting it on black Twitter. I mean, I think we're going to see a lot of other countries um, maybe be responsible for conspiracy theories here once again for vaccine when it, start, when it starts to roll out, so. And there's a lot of hesitance <laughs> just in general surrounding vaccinations. And this isn't something that is uniquely to people who are, so this is like, this actually sort of represents how ideologically across the United States, wherever you fall on the political spectrum, you're resistant to some aspect of science. So typically, if you're, if you're more conservative, you're resistant to climate change science, stuff along those lines. But the people who are on the liberal spectrum tend to be more hesitant about vaccines and GMOs and those sorts of things. So I feel like, I feel like it's gonna be difficult if you've got now both sides of the political spectrum being resistant to this, this, sort, of, this sort of vaccine. And this is why we can't rely on it being our magic bullet. We cannot rely on treatment being our magic bullet here. What's gonna come down to it at the end of the day is behavioral change in our society. That is mm -hmm. the thing that is going to protect us most. Yeah, and that's been my messaging too. Whenever I've talked to anybody, it's always been, we can't wait for a vaccine. And even when a vaccine gets here, we are going to have to behaviorally modify for, uh, because this is, this is something that's not going away. This is something that is, and we now know that you can be reinfected with, with COVID uh, as well. The, the evidence is, is overwhelming for reinfection. So it's very possible that COVID just cycles in along with the flu, like it has that seasonal component where it's just very, very difficult, or it has a large burden in the winter and maybe not so much during like the summer months, but this is something that, that we're going to be, that we're going to be living with for, for a very, very long time. Right. right. Well, it was wonderful talking to you. Yes. Um, yes. Hopefully some people can get a little bit of my perspective from coming from China to here and being chicken little for a little bit. No, we definitely appreciate you coming on, talking about, you know, all of these different COVID topics, because I feel like, you know, our viewership definitely needs a different perspective because they've just heard me, you know, telling all of this to them. So hopefully they can get, uh, get the idea that this isn't just me, like these, these things are, the, the measures that we're suggesting are of a scientific consensus within our, within the public health community. 
So, oh, and one last thing, um, I would like to bring this up before we end. Okay. Um, when I got my first email, I got it as a United States citizen. It had nothing to do with being in the role that I was in. It had nothing to do with being a public health student. I got it as a regular citizen. Um, Who sent it? It was from the State Department and the embassy because I had signed up for um. the Smart Travelers program. And at that point in time, I will never forget the opening this email because I was standing next to a world-renowned pulmonologist. We get this email, I'm showing it to him, and we're like, well, let's look at the cases. And we're reading through the description of the first few cases. And <laughs> we look at each other at the same time. This is not going to be good. And for some reason, this memory has just rode along with me, this, this whole pandemic, this is not going to be good. But I, I think we have a lot of good people working on this and we'll be continuing to be working on this, whether it's the front lines, whether it's the scientific, academic, local and state and federal public health sectors that are doing their darndest to protect the public. And I think the public is going to be seeing a change of heart too, whether it is Trump supporters or whether it is in the 70 million that voted for him that will see a change of heart in trying to protect people outside their friends and loved ones. Absolutely. And I think that that's an important message. Like there, there is so much more that unites us than divides us. And especially now that we're in this pandemic, I mean, there is not a single person in the United States that hasn't been affected in one way or another by this pandemic. And going forward, I hope we realize that we need to, we need to, you know, have respect and decency and want to want to help out our fellow Americans. I mean, you know, Donald Trump said he was a wartime president, and this is something that I actually 100% agree with. This could be treated like a war, like not against like a foreign power, but against an invading infectious disease. And we should, you know, as Americans realize that we all need to step up and, and do our part. But with that, I will say thank you, Bettina. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and speaking with us. So you can, if you're listening to this um, on one of our pod, I'm not sure how everything works, but if you're listening to this, you can also watch this on YouTube on our Intelligence Speculation YouTube page. You can follow me at Epi Made Easy, E-P-I Made Easy on Twitter. Um, and you can follow us at Critical Thinker on Instagram and Twitter. And uh, Bettina, do you want to plug your TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, anything like that? Where can we find you? Where can we follow you? Where are we going to get that next viral video from? <laughs> oh, I, I, I will certainly plug my TikTok. It is B-B-S-C-H-N-E. Yep. And then my Twitter is B-E underscore S-C underscore I-E-N-C-E. So. Um, I, I try to primarily use my Twitter as a platform for uplifting voices of experts and the narratives of experts during this time. So many of the people that I, I follow and commonly retweet are either ID experts themselves, ID infectious disease epidemiologists, virologists, mathematical modelers that are at the four lines of this. So um, if, even if you don't care to follow me, look at who I'm following and, and check in on those narratives too. Excellent. Thank you so much. We appreciate all the work that you are doing. And thank you, listeners.